We come to a classic story this morning, the story of David and Goliath, as David pursues in a certain sense or advances toward the throne that Saul possesses over Israel. We're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 17, but given the length of the story, we're then going to jump to verse 32 and finish it. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socha, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Socha and Azekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Picking up in verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, 
the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and of the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shuram as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think I went a little farther than what you had. Apologies. Please be seated. Last week we began a new sermon series on the life of David entitled Searching for a King. And it's as we, we explore and plumb the story of, um, of Israel searching for the right king, the king who would lead them in righteousness and in a God-honoring way, we learn and are reminded about our search for our king, uh, seeking Jesus and drawing near to him as king. The prophet Samuel has actually already picked out David and anointed him as king, but it's relatively secret. David's family knows, Samuel knows, but nobody else knows. And so the story is really the beginning of David's approach to assuming the throne over Israel. And the story of David and Goliath is very much about seeing things rightly. It's, a, it's about perspective. It's about the difference between people who see with eyes of faith and people who see um, with very worldly eyes. They have what you might call spiritual cataracts. I don't know if you've ever labored to look at one of the uh, Magic Eye 3D posters. And they, um, they're the posters that seem very abstract when you look at them and don't really make any sense at all. They're often in booze and malls, and I've spent many, uh, I've wasted too much time trying to see images in these posters. So if you stare at them, uh, apparently you're supposed to let your eyes go out of focus. And as your eyes go out of focus, the 3D image that's hidden in this conglomeration of uh, images comes forward, and then you see a new picture. Well, I'm terrible at these posters. I could stare at one of these for 30 minutes and not see the image that I'm supposed to see. And it's always why I'm trying that someone, usually 10 years old, walks up and says, oh, it's a bear, you know, immediately. And you think, how did you see what's in there so easily? I can't see it at all. Realize that there's, there's a lot that goes into perspective, seeing things in a certain way, understanding what is transpiring. And that's a very prominent theme, really in the book of 1 Samuel, but certainly as we explore the story of David and Goliath. Eyes of faith are the eyes that can see uh, 
God's purposes, God's movement in this world, because eyes of faith are based on the premise that God, they're informed by God's character and God's promises. And when we stop looking at things and evaluate them by God's character and God's promises, well, we see things very differently. We see things a lot like the world sees them. And we seek to, uh, to function in an appropriate way because our eyes are cloudy. We have spiritual cataracts to some extent. And so we see this, this display laid out before us by God in the story of David and Goliath that David is the one who has eyes of faith. And the rest of Israel, Saul, everyone else, is not equipped with eyes of faith. They have spiritual cataracts. As the story begins, it's pretty exciting that it's, the scene is tense with the anticipation of battle. You have two hillsides and a valley. The Philistines on one side, the Israelites on the other, and you know that the air is ripe for war. Something is going to happen. But then what happens in the story is actually somewhat unusual. Uh, you have almost an unprecedented description of an individual in the Old Testament. The author of 1 Samuel goes out of out of his way to give you a very long description of this individual. And what's even more peculiar is a very long description of his armor, his weaponry, what he's carrying and wearing. You think, well, what really is the intent of the author here? When you read it, and with some knowledge, and I didn't, but reading commentators, they say, oh, well, a particular point is being made here. Goliath, when they describe his armor, is just like anyone else in the Bronze Age. Right? He's equipped in a typical fashion, which is kind of the period of technology that Israel is in. But when it starts talking about his sword and his spear, it's um, the author is telling you that the Philistines have moved into the Iron Age. He is sporting new weaponry. He is technologically advanced. So the author is taking time out to describe to you that Goliath is very big. He's over eight feet tall. His uh, armor alone weighs 125 pounds. Can you imagine being agile for battle wearing 125 pounds? But at the same time, he's technologically advanced. He has both advantages. If you were if you were to look at this, it would be terribly impressive because all of the physical strength is on Goliath's side and all of the technological strength is on Goliath's side. This is... You, you read this description and you think, oh, I pity the person who goes up. This isn't going to go well. No one can stand against this kind of strength. And so it's no exaggeration when in verse 11, it says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And then Saul, having heard David's boasting, calls him, and when he sees him, his response in verse 33 is, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Everyone in Israel is scared to death. Goliath is insurmountable. He's too strong and he's too advanced, and there's no way forward. The king, the people, everyone is trembling in fear. And the author of 1 Samuel is highlighting that all of these evaluations have been made from very worldly eyes. They've not evaluated the strength of Goliath from the perspective of God. Right? Who wins battles? Do, do spears and javelins win battles against the living God? 
If Israel was looking with eyes of faith, this wouldn't be nearly as intimidating. And yet they're scared to death because they're neither thinking about nor believing in the character and promises of God. Israel was struggling to see, uh, very much struggling to see with eyes of faith. And this has been the story all along in the book of 1 Samuel. That thing, people, it's this ongoing thing that things are evaluated in the wrong way. And if you evaluate things with worldly eyes rather than with eyes of faith, then it ultimately leads to bad consequences. So if we were to go back in 1 Samuel 10, Saul is chosen to rule by Lot. Um, God's pointed him out. They draw lots to identify Saul in the midst of the people as they've gathered. And they go, well, okay, who's Saul? And they look for him and he's gone. He's hiding in the baggage. And so they pull him out and they bring him forward. And 1 Samuel 10.23 says, Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Why is there no one like Saul amongst all the people? Because he's head and shoulders taller than everyone else. The people look at him and say, oh, he's a physical specimen. Of course he should be king. Long live the king. And Saul turns out to be a terrible king. He's a complete failure. Evaluated on completely wrong grounds to some extent. And as the story goes forward, you think, well, surely the prophet Samuel will get things right. And as he denounces Saul, he's led by God to find the next king of Israel and shows up at Jesse's house and starts to look at Jesse's sons, knowing that one of Jesse's sons will be will be the next king. And the first son he comes upon is the oldest, who's Eliab. And Eliab comes out, and Eliab looks strong. He looks he looks healthy. He looks like a good candidate to be king. And God says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the heart looks on the Lord. In other words, Samuel looks at Eliab and says, yep, strong guy. And God says, no, you're looking at the wrong things. I look at the heart. You're evaluating the wrong criteria because you are looking with worldly eyes. And the one that God chooses is actually the runt of the litter, David, whose hand somebody's little, right? A pretty boy. Who would think he'd be a good king? And yet he's the one that God has selected, and he's the one that will be anointed. Israel at large suffers from spiritual cataracts. Saul's wrongly appreciated for his spiritual prowess. Eliab is wrongly assessed by Samuel to be the next king. And now all of Saul and Israel stand trembling before this giant who is equipped with impressive armor and weaponry, and no one is consulting or thinking about God's perspective on this situation. Save one. Save David, who comes to this and, and looks at it with eyes of faith. His vision is different. His, he evaluates things in a completely different way. And David's attitude, his eyes of faith are best captured when he's actually trash talking with Goliath. And in verses 45 and 47, he says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. It doesn't matter. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
a little bit further down, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David does not fear Goliath. He knows that the battle belongs to God, and God can uh, kill Goliath any way that he wants. He knows the battle is, is shored up. David sees the same drama that's being played out for the rest of Israel and for Saul, and he comes to a completely different conclusion. Right? Same factors, same story, same elements, and David says, alone in the nation, David says, the battle is the Lord's, and we shouldn't be worried about spears or javelins, weaponry or technology or size. That strength pales in comparison to God's strength. So what are we saying? If you walk with eyes of faith, then you will defeat all of the Goliaths that come to you. You will always see these things that attack you and are a a stone in your path. And you will say, I have eyes of faith. God equips me. The battle is his. I will take it down. And you'll walk through life like David and Goliath will melt before you and you will be impervious. I say that in a bit of jest because I don't think that's a very good reading of the story. That's a very popular reading of the story. In fact, I googled just out of curiosity uh, David and Goliath and slaying giants and sermons and talks and the vast majority of hits on the first few pages are all about how you can slay the giants in your life if you live and walk like David lived and walked. That's a pretty tough message if you think about it. Right? First, because if you're not slaying all the giants in your life, whose problem is that? It's yours. You're failing. You're not exhibiting enough faith. If you just had enough faith, you'd be like David, and there would be no Goliath that could stand in your path. I don't know about you, but my life doesn't really communicate that to me. A lot of Goliaths beat up on me pretty frequently. And so if the answer is, I just lack faith, then the rest of my life looks pretty hopeless. I'm not very keen on that interpretation. Not to mention that if we were to read the story that way, where do we fit Jesus into that matrix? Right? If the story is all about me having faith like David so I can slay the Goliaths in my life, then Jesus doesn't seem to be a very necessary part of reading the story in that fashion. And so we begin to get a sense that it's actually a very bad reading of the story. It's not the point of the story at all. In verse 4, Goliath is said to be the champion who comes out against uh, the Israelites on behalf of the Philistine army. And the the Hebrew word for champion, that that we translate champion, literally means the man between. Goliath is the man between the two enemy armies. He comes out on behalf of the Philistines, so he fights on their behalf, and David then becomes the champion, the man in between, who fights on behalf of Israel. And David, as we see going forward from the story, actually awakens something in Israel. It's really rather profound that the notion doesn't necessarily exist so much to the extent until David comes and the people of Israel see, oh, God has provided a champion who fights on our behalf and has defeated something that we felt like we couldn't defeat. And the prophets begin to look, begin to look forward to another David, another champion who stands between, the man between who fights on behalf of God's people to effect victory over over the enemies of God's people on their behalf. And of course, the David story points forward to the great champion, to Jesus, the man in between who goes into the wilderness and confronts the Goliath Satan, 
and walks away unscathed, having victory over him, and then goes to the cross and faces the Goliaths of sin and death and triumphs over them in his resurrection. The David story is meant for us to look forward to a better champion, a better king. But this is where, for me, I think so often the reading of the David and Goliath story swings too far in the other direction. So on the one hand, we're saying, listen, if you take a reading where this is just all moralism, that it's an example for you to follow, you exhibit the faith of David and smash the Goliaths in your life, that's going to be pretty frustrating and it isn't going to give you any hope because you're not going to be successful. But if we go all the way to the other side and say, oh, this story is just about Jesus. Jesus comes, he's the new David, he defeats the big Goliath, and so we really don't have any fighting to do, and, well, we'll just wait. That's an extreme in the other direction. And really, the proper reading is in between. Yes, the story points forward to Jesus, but it's also a lesson to us about what it means to walk through this life with faith to evaluate things based on God's character and God's promises, and to be willing to step out in uh, based on God's promises. You know, David walks, if you take David as an example, he walks into the battle fully expecting that he's going to win. Right? This battle is mine. You're, I'm going to cut off your head. All right? But what David doesn't go, you know, he could have gone into the battle and said, you know, I am fully confident on God's authority here. The battle is his. You're going to fall. Not sure how it's going to happen. I'm just going to stand here and wait. Maybe stroke, cardiac arrest, lightning bolt, right? You slip and fall down. Can't get up because of your heavy armor. I don't know. But I'm just going to stand here. That's not what happens. David believes, but he participates. He says, this guy has taken a certain strategy. How can I be more cunning than him? Well, I'm pretty good with a sling. And if I go with a sling, I can stay far enough away from him that his, his weaponry is really rendered pretty useless. And if I don't wear this armor that Saul has, I'm going to remain fast. I can move way faster than he is. might even have opportunity to get off several shots. Maybe the first one won't land. David approaches it saying, yes, I believe that the battle is won, the victory is the Lord's, and I'm going to sure enter this with everything I've got to be the full participant. And really, that's rather glorious if you think about it, because if God did not permit you to to participate in his victories, life would be terribly boring. You just stand around waiting for God to do what God was going to do. He loves you more than that. He invites you to actually step out in faith. And that really is the place where our faith grows. You know, one of the... uh, the interesting things as well is you see the champions fight. Some people think a champion in ancient times would fight and decide the whole contest for both armies, but that's not really what happens in the story and was not true of all ancient cultures. Goliath comes out and is going to fight, and David fights and David wins. But what happens afterwards? The army then pursues the Philistines to carry out the rest of the story. Right, this thing, it involves the participation of the entire people being encouraged by David's, um, David's victory over Goliath. The confidence, the faith that he exhibits doesn't render him as someone who doesn't participate. In fact, it invites him to participate all the more. And so it should be with your faith that you believe that King Jesus is victorious you believe that he will lead you in a victorious fashion, 
over the Goliaths that indeed are in your life. But then do you actually act on that faith or do you kind of stand, stand back? Say, uh, God's done it all in Jesus, hasn't he? Why should I, you know, I don't want to, I want to be perceived as, as thinking that I'm contributing to my salvation by works. I'm going to stand back. That's not the notion at all. It's not the notion that we see in the life of Jesus himself. When, when Jesus steps into face the greatest Goliath of all, which is sin, which is death, which is being separated from the love of God the Father, which he has known perfectly from time immemorable. All of these things bear down on Jesus, and he doesn't want to go to the cross. He sweat drops of blood, and yet, because he entrusts himself to the Father and believes in the Father's character and his promises, he goes and faces that Goliath. And I think the lesson of David and the lesson of Jesus is much more that. That to really participate and grow in God and faith is the willingness, based on faith, to step into those very scary places. Those places that threaten us, because that is the only place that our faith is tested. Without a scary place, there is no test of faith, and you don't grow, and you really don't even understand what discipleship is. Because discipleship that doesn't require anything of you isn't discipleship at all. And so, as you think about your faith, are you really willing to proceed into some of those scary places? You know, as David steps, can you imagine Right? Most of us would wet ourselves if we stepped into the court with Goliath. Can you imagine Jesus? Sweating in the Garden of Gethsemane. Dying, big deal. But I'm about to be rejected by the Father. The the scariest thing in the history of the cosmos. What do you do with your fears? What do you do with those scary places where you think you should step, but then you think, is God really reliable? Is God safe? Does He love me? Is He going to see me through this? And that's what I want you to wrestle with this morning. It may be any number of things for you. It might be you know, going to talk to someone about Jesus that you're desperately afraid of. It, it might be coming clean. You know, you've, you've been consuming too much of something and you know it's been a problem for a long time and it's time to talk to somebody. It might be dealing with something that's happened in the past that has controlled you for a long time. And you've lived in the shadow of it and you know that it affects you and perhaps now it's time to go to that very scary place and believe because God is faithful to His Word and God loves you that He will see you through it and the battle belongs to Him. Not to the things you, you perceive that thing to hold very impressive javelins and spears and to be very large. But when we really start to believe in who God is and what He can do, that thing becomes diminished in a remarkable way. We tend to be a scared people, and I think one of, one of the ways in which we come to the gospel and appropriate it in our lives is actually to be frank about that. We uh, you know, alluded to a study in the midst of the children's lesson today in which uh, we are profoundly, perhaps one of the most fatalistic cultures in the history of the world. And by that I mean we have so, um, we so value the life that we experience, and we have so hidden death behind closed doors, that we are terribly afraid of death. Right? When I tell you to finish a movie, right, and you bear out the cultural reality, 
60% of you say car wreck. What's the matter with you? Why don't they go to grandma's and have a nice dinner and open presents? And it's a lovely evening. The other 10 to 15% were things like, oh, they get to grandma's and a serial killer has been there. Right? We are a disturbed people group. Why? We're infatuated with death because we're we're terrified of it. We're desperately afraid. Is God going to be faithful? Is there something after or is there nothing? So we wrestle with those questions and we start to covet and hold on dearly to the things that we love in this life. And so we just avoid thinking about it. But man, what would happen if we raised a generation of kids that weren't afraid of death? They say, oh, I run to death. It's the doorway through which I meet Jesus. Come when it may, I'm ready. And I will shake its hand. Well, that would be a group of people who change the world. It's very difficult, and we would be fooling ourselves if we didn't, uh, we're honest about how hard it is to change. How hard it is to engage fear, to go into the scary place, and to trust that God would meet us in that place. In fact, we're terrible at change. Uh, humans are rather pathetic in this uh, endeavor. Dan Airely was, was telling a story. He uh, is an individual, a scientist, social scientist, been badly burned uh, in a, a bombing in Israel. He's an Israelite and uh, spent a long time in the hospital and through one of his blood transfusions had contracted hepatitis C, which is pretty serious business. And it would likely kill him uh, through sclerosis of the liver eventually if he didn't receive some kind of treatment. And so they were piloting a new treatment. And uh, and so Airely was brought in to be considered as one of the candidates and was chosen. And they said, listen, uh, this is the new treatment. You have to take this drug. You have to inject it into yourself three times a week for a year and a half. And each time you inject it, you're going to go through a period. It was something like 12 hours where you feel pretty miserable. Uh, sweats, fever, you're going to be vomiting. And you're going to have to do this for a year and a half. So, uh, I said, okay, well, that doesn't sound very pleasant. Uh, what is the alternative? They said, well, the alternative is you're probably going to die of sclerosis of the liver at a young age if you don't go through this treatment, and it's not effective. Airely says, okay, I'll go through the treatment. And Airely, um, so of this massive group of people who go through this clinical trial of experimenting with this drug, Airely was the only individual who faithfully took his medication for a year and a half. The only one. He said, I realized that to get through this, um, and of course, when you, when you present it to everyone and say, okay, here's the alternative. You can die uh, unpleasantly young, or you can take this medication, which is unpleasant in the short term. Of course, everybody says, oh, well, I don't want... I don't want that. I don't want to die young. I don't want to die of sclerosis of the liver. I'm going to go through the medication. You know, no one's saying, oh, I'm not going to, or I'm not going to be faithful. They're all saying, yes, I'm in. And then they start, and they feel miserable. And one night comes, and they say, well, oh, my friends are going out. And if I take this, I can't go out with them. I'm going to go out, and I'll, I'll make it up later. And so things constantly interrupt in the immediacy of that opportunity to actually save themselves, Airely figured out he had to reward himself. It's the only way he would do it. So he loved movies. He would go and rent a couple of movies every time he had to give himself an injection, get a uh, bucket and a blanket for what was about to come, and he would sit down and watch a couple movies. 
And that's the only way that he was able to get through the year and a half. And you know, he says this is, um, this is very true of a certain phenomenon that we find in humanity. And it's bound up in this very simple example. If we were, if I was to pass around this amazing chocolate bar to you, right? Highest end chocolate in the world. And you smelled it and you're looking at it and it is looking pretty awesome. And you were thinking, I could sure use some chocolate. And I say, you can have half the chocolate bar this instant. Or if you wait a week, I'll give you a whole chocolate bar. The vast majority of people, particularly if you see and smell the chocolate, chooses what? I want half now, right? Better half in my hands than a whole in the week. But the funny thing is, if you say, okay, a year from now, I'm going to make you the same offer. You can have half a chocolate bar, or if you wait one additional week, you can have the whole chocolate bar. What does everybody say then? Oh, wait an extra week. I'm waiting a year anyway. Right? The duration is actually the same between either receiving the half of the chocolate bar or the whole chocolate bar. But when you move it into the future, you become a very responsible individual. Right? You make the right decision when it's in the future. Just like you say, oh yeah, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm not going to procrastinate. In the future, I'm going to do this and be this way. And then you get to the future and you're living in the present and things distract you. And you choose other things. And it's part of the very funny nature of human nature is that we often make incredibly bad decisions in the short term. Everybody says, imagine, it's Adam and Eve. Who in the world would give up eternity with God for a piece of fruit? Right? I mean, abstractly, think about that decision. I'm offering you eternity with God or a piece of fruit. (laughs) Do you need to weigh that decision? He says it's ridiculous when you look at it from that perspective, but in the immediacy of the moment, the fruit is what's most attractive. They say, we laugh and we think, how could they have possibly done that? And then he's got this great thing. He says, yeah, I mean, that's crazy. And then he throws up a picture of a, of a driver texting. He says, yeah, who, who would make a crazy decision like that and give up life in order to send a message? And you think, oh, yeah, right? Raise your hands if you've texted and driven. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't mean that seriously. But I'll talk to you after the <laughs> service, right? Because, and I didn't mean it seriously because I know you wouldn't tell the truth. The vast majority of you have at some time texted and driven. And it's crazy. It's insane to do it, right? But in the immediacy of the moment, you feel something's urgent. I need to respond. I'm wondering what this is saying. And you choose to do it rather than to choose what's wise in the long run. And so is the challenge for us in our walk of faith. Then when the scary, when the fearful presses in, when Goliaths encroach on our boundaries, how easy it is to run away or to play afraid or to sit with Israel and say, somebody else will be raised up to take that on. And it's David who sees with eyes of faith and says, no, this battle belongs to the Lord and I walk into it. And as a result, great things result. Do you believe enough? Do you have faith? And what Jesus has done, that you would actually begin 
to face those giants, to face those fears, to walk up to them, say, the battle belongs to the Lord, and I trust in Jesus, and I'm going to enter into this suffering, and beautiful things will result. That really is the journey of discipleship. And as Israel struggles with its spiritual cataracts, we have David who demonstrates what eyes of faith look like. And as Israel much later will struggle with its spiritual cataracts, Jesus comes on the scene and demonstrates what it means to have eyes of faith. And so for us, you have to struggle this morning. You know the fears. You know the places that you don't want to go. The things that you don't want to be honest about. Will you live with eyes of faith? Or will you live just like the rest of the world? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that Jesus is our champion. That Jesus has defeated sin and death. And that there is the resurrection of the body because you have raised his body. But Father, we pray this morning that you would encourage our faith. You know, we so often pray that, Father, but I certainly confess that while I pray it, I so like to expect that you're just going to do that without me participating. And I ask that you would forgive me for that and forgive us. And as we pray this morning, I pray that your spirit would change our hearts to say, increase our faith and show us how we are expected to participate in the increase of that faith. Give us courage. Give us boldness and give us especially faith in you as David had. It's faith that moved David forward. It's faith that moved Jesus forward. And I pray that it would be faith that moves us forward, that we might know all the more what true discipleship is and experience your love in the midst of it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.